Well, as I said, we, we come to another hard text, a difficult text, a text that demands much from us, whether you are a follower of Jesus or you're not yet a follower of Jesus. This, this text addresses us all. Commentator William Barclay says of, of this story, Within this story, one of the deepest of all lessons is to be learned. For it has within it the whole basis of the difference between the right and the wrong idea of what religion is. So in this story is one of the deepest lessons we can learn, a lesson that each and every one of us needs to learn, must learn, and remain learning throughout the whole of our life between what is right and what is wrong about religion. That is, namely, what is right and what is wrong about following Jesus. We're going to look at three points today to help us walk through this passage, and we'll explain what is right and what is wrong as we go through. The three points are going to follow the narrative story. Point number one, leaving sorrowfully. Point number two, entering impossibly. And point number three, following hopefully. So let's jump into point number one, leaving sorrowfully. You would have noticed that in verse 13 to 15, we have this beautiful scene where uh, presumably mothers are bringing their young children to Jesus to be blessed by him, to be prayed for by him. And who wouldn't want Jesus to pray over your children? We're going to do a baby dedication in a couple of weeks' time. I will pray over your children. But I bet you, if Jesus was here, (laughs) you'd skip uh, the prayers from me and go straight to Jesus. And I can imagine the scene of crowds of people coming in wanting Jesus to pray. The disciples who were Jesus' bodyguards and as such, they're like, no, 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 Jesus doesn't have time for babies. He's got more important kingdom work to do. But Jesus rebukes them and says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. Do not prevent them. Do not make a a, a barrier for them. Do not make a stumbling block for them. Why? For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Now, this story of the, of the children and, and the nature of them, we've already looked at a couple of weeks ago when Jesus said that anyone who wants to come to me must be like a child. If you want to become a follower of Jesus, you've got to be like a child. That is, you've got to lose your status, you've got to lose your sense of who you are in this world and admit, I need you. And this, this st- story of the children acts as a sort of a foil to the story that comes next with the parable of the rich young ruler. To the children belongs the kingdom of heaven. They have no status. They have nothing to offer him. They have no power to give him, no money, no skills. They're just children. And then we move to the story of the rich young ruler. And we're going to see that he has two major barriers that do hinder him from coming into the kingdom of heaven. Two major barriers that I think will serve us today as we look at them and perceive them, judge them in our own hearts and our own souls. Firstly, the major barrier that blocks him is religious performance. And secondly, worldly possessions. And in a sentence, if you wanted to summarize sort of the thrust of this story, it's this. Jesus, I believe, is is reaching into our congregation today and saying something like this. Let not your worldly possessions or religious performance prevent you from entering eternal life. Let not your possessions or your performance prevent you from entering into eternal life. Verse 16, we have this 
moment where Matthew uses this word behold. He's trying to generate this drama. And behold, so there's crowds of people, uh, the, the children have moved away, and behold, a man came up to him. In Mark and Luke's gospel, we learn that he's a ruler. In Mark's gospel, we learn that he ran up to him and knelt at his feet. So this is quite the scene. A, a rich young man bolting up to Jesus and obviously, the disciples didn't block him. <laughs> you know, they knew how th- these things work. A rich young ruler, that's going to be good for the, the wallet, potentially. Not casting aspersions on the disciples. But they let him through, not the children. Uh, and the rich young ruler comes up, bows before Jesus, and says, Teacher, and notice that question. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? That's the fundamental religious question, isn't it? It's the fundamental question of the human heart and all human religions. What good deeds must I do to gain God's favor, to enter into the kingdom, to have eternal life? It's the basic religious mindset that goes across all worldviews, whether they're major religions or just the zeitgeist of our age. What good must I do to be accepted? And that's the first stumbling block in his life. He's trusting in his religious performance. Let's see how Jesus deals with this stumbling block. Verse 17, Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now, when Jesus says there is only one who is good, he's challenging the rich young man to to perceive that he's not that one, that he can't be that great God, that great good enough person to enter and receive life. None of us can. But the young man is mistaken. He's blinded by his own performance and self-righteousness, perhaps blinded by a small view of his own sin. And that can be true for any of us here today. Whenever we have a small view of how bad our sin is before a holy God, we start to think, yeah, you know, like maybe I need Jesus or maybe I have a way of getting in, but like I'm not that bad. Well, for the, for the rich young man, he, Jesus knew that he needed to have an idea that there is only one who is good. That is the Lord of lords, the King of kings, God himself, Yahweh. He is the holy, holy, holy God, the righteous one. And by implication, Jesus is actually insinuating that he's caught up in that, that he he is along those lines, but he doesn't say it explicitly. He leaves it to be assumed. And the point is that this young man is meant to respond to that sentence and be like, oh, you're right, actually, teacher. I'm nowhere near being good enough. I can't do anything to enter eternal life. But instead, he, he presses on uh, like we are tempted to do. And perhaps if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you might be resonating with him. Verse 18a, the rich young man says to him, which ones? All right, so you've got to keep the commandments, the law of God. Well, he wants to know, well, which commands do I have to keep? Again, that is crucial to human religion, is that we never want to keep the whole law. I mean, the Old Testament commands, there's 613 different laws and ordinances. That's a lot. <laughs> you know, if, if your ability to make it into heaven is based on keeping every single one of those, well, that's too hard. So he narrows it down. Which ones do I have to keep? He wants to pick and choose the laws that are attainable. And perhaps we do that as well. We have our definition of what is good. 
and that's often things that we're good at. <laughs> and then the things that aren't very good, we, we don't consider them as important. We narrow God's perfect standard down, and so Jesus begins to work on that. In verse 18b, he says, okay, let, let's choose some. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You'll notice that that's the uh, Ten Commandments, the second half of the table of the Ten Commandments. Uh, but he's left one of them out, do not covet, which we'll come to in a moment. He summarizes the whole second half of the Ten Commandments with that phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. So what should you do to enter eternal life? Well, Jesus is saying, perfectly love God and love your neighbor. Again, the young man, deceived and deluded by his own self uh, religious performance. Verse 20, the young man said to him, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? So he obviously has a high estimation of himself, you know, and, and some of these laws, if you don't think about them too much, you're like, yeah, like I haven't cheated on my wife or my husband, I haven't killed anyone that I know of, uh, I, I don't steal very regularly, I wasn't the person at Winston Hills Hotel last night, um, I'm fine. Maybe he didn't really think too hard about honor your father and mother. I'm sure no one could honestly say every single moment of every day of my life, I have honored and obeyed my mom and dad. But perhaps this guy was particularly good. But he knew that maybe Jesus was holding out on him. So he asked this final question, what do I still lack? Maybe there was something in Jesus' body language, etc. And Jesus now turns to the second stumbling block that this man has. The first one, his religious performance. He thinks he can make his own way in. But secondly, he wants to now turn on his worldly possessions. Verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect or complete, go, sell what you have, or what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come. Follow me. Now we come to the crux of this man's heart and soul. Not only does he have a problem with his religious performance that he can't see, but he also has a problem with his worldly possessions. And so Jesus, the surgeon of the heart, comes in with the scalpel and chooses the one thing, the major thing, the, the major stumbling block in this man's life. His riches, his possessions, what he has in this world. And so he tells him he needs to do two things. Firstly, the thing that we notice, and thing that sounds hard, even as follows as Christ, he must sell all these possessions and give them to the poor. Now, this isn't a universal command for everyone that, you know, if you have anything right now, Gumtree, get your phone out, let's go. Uh, and then the last thing you sell on Gumtree is your phone, you give it to the person, you're done. But this is a command for this man to get to his own heart. But the second command, we shouldn't miss it also, and come, follow me. So sell all you have, why? So that you can come and follow me unhindered, unchained by your ties to this world. He must renounce his stakes in the world and follow Jesus. He must take up his cross and follow Jesus, deny himself and follow Jesus. So how does he respond? Well, it's one of the saddest verses, I think, in the whole Bible. Verse 22. When the young man heard this, 
he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. How sad is this? He's face to face with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's face to face with the creator of heaven and earth, the one who owns the galaxies and holds them up by his word. He's face to face with God himself. And yet when he compares having to leave behind his treasured belongings to follow Jesus, he just can't do it. The cost is too great. And perhaps he left sorrowful for that, but maybe even still trusting in his own religious performance, hoping he could still get in to eternal life, holding on to his possessions. And the reason why this is so sad is it's such a vivid picture of what the Bible calls, calls idolatry. An idol doesn't have to be something like a carved figure or a metal figure that you create to represent a God. An idol is anything in our life which has more of a hold of us than God does. An idol is anything that is more important to you than God. And for this young man, I believe, his wealth and worldly possessions had become his idol. How do we know? He was willing to walk away from God to keep it. He was willing to walk away full of the world, but void of eternal life. And perhaps there are some people here today who are not yet Christians. You haven't entered into life. You haven't taken up the call to follow Jesus. And perhaps you are like this young man, counting the cost. I want eternal life, of course. Everyone wants to go to heaven. But should I follow Jesus? Is he worth it? This is how Jesus phrases what it means to follow him earlier in this gospel, in Matthew 16. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? For the rich young man, Jesus knew that his greatest obstacles were his performance and his possessions, particularly his great wealth. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And how true and how sadly true this was for the rich young ruler. You can only have one ultimate God in your life. And for him, he chose it in that moment. But for you, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, it might be something else that is the one biggest thing stopping you from following Jesus today. And so it's worth asking yourself the question, what is my one thing? If it's not wealth, and it might be wealth, you might be like, I don't want to lose control of my wealth. I don't want God to tell me what to do with my money. Not worth it. But it might be other things. What's your one thing that's stopping you today from becoming a Christian and following Jesus? Perhaps it's your sexuality or your sexual identity or how you want to practice your life sexually. Maybe it's your reputation, your social standing. You may have noticed it's not very cool to be a Christian these days or ever. 
Maybe it's your independence. You know, if I deny myself and follow Jesus, I've denied myself and I'm following Jesus. And I don't like that because I like myself and I like doing what I want to do. I don't want God to make me miss out. Perhaps you already have a religious belief and you're afraid to leave it or you're confused about it. Well, maybe it's your family. You're worried that if you follow Christ, you will be disowned, rejected, an outcast. Maybe it's one particular sin that you love and that you know you would have to give up if you were to follow Christ today. The question I want to ask to follow that up is, is that one thing worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to miss out on eternal life, to miss out on the joy of following Jesus, to miss out on heaven for that one thing? Is it worth trading in eternal life to have your one thing today? My plea with you is do not go away sorrowful and empty-handed like the rich young man did. If you do, you have seriously underestimated who Jesus is. You've underestimated the joy and the power and the hope and the comfort and the satisfaction that Jesus can bring. It's like that um, TV show, I don't know if you've ever seen it, Undercover Boss where the, the boss comes in, undercover CEO, whatever it is, and they, they pretend that they're, you know, just flipping burgers, and it turns out they started McDonald's or whatever it is. Well, in this scenario, Jesus is undercover king. He's robed in, in frailty. He looks unassuming and, and, and quite pathetic. Yeah, he's got great teaching. And even right now, for, Christ, for you who are listening in and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, it doesn't look all that great or all that promising or all that worth it, but he's the undercover king. What he holds in his name and his status is the worlds and the universes and the galaxies and all wealth and all power. And if you come to him, you'll get in on that. So don't go away sorrowful. Don't go away with your one thing and void of Jesus. Repent of it. Deny yourself and become a follower of Jesus today. Let not your worldly possessions or religious performance prevent you from entering eternal life. That was point number one, leaving sorrowfully. Don't leave sorrowfully. Point number two, entering impossibly. Jesus now wants to gather the disciples. He's speaking now primarily to us, this church, and he wants to train them in what just took place. As they go about making disciples and as they go about being disciples, they need instruction. And so Jesus is going to warn us again of those two dangers, worldly possessions and religious performance. Look at verse 22 and 24. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. These two verses, although using this strange and extreme example, are actually solemn sayings of Jesus. Um, in the original, you can see it, but it says, Truly I say to you, again 
I tell you. This is a grave moment. This young man has walked away from eternal life. Now Jesus gathers the boys, the disciples around and says, I'm going to tell you something that is extremely important. And I believe he would reach into Northmead Anglican Church today to speak to Sovereign Grace Church Parramatta and tell us this very significant truth. The danger of our worldly possessions. Why is it that it's very difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven? Why is it so hard? So hard, in fact, that it's easier to, you know, and there is no way getting, this is the analogy, a camel going through the eye of a needle. Okay, so very, very difficult, nigh on impossible. Yet not totally impossible because many of us are rich and are here today. But why is it so difficult? Well, it's not the money itself. It's not being wealthy. Matthew, the writer of this gospel, left behind his riches to follow Jesus. Zacchaeus was likely a rich man, another tax collector. He followed Jesus. Many who became Christians were rich people. You read it in the book of Acts. The danger is not money per se, but the love of money. And this is the danger for us today. Because money... Riches, wealth, and all that they can get us have a particular ability of wrapping their tentacles around us, like vines that grow and strangle out the plant that is there, the good plant, and render it flowerless. Our love of money can choke out our soul. It's a danger not just for entering the kingdom, but for staying in it, isn't it? Look what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. He says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people, that's a powerful word, plunge people into ruin and destruction. You want to be rich? I want to be rich? Well, you know, this is the temptation. This is the danger. We will be plunged into a pool of ruin and destruction. Why? Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that, this is Paul speaking to Timothy, this has already happened, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Friends, this is a prescient warning for us. He's already warned, Jesus has already done it in the parable of the four soils. If you remember Matthew 13, 22, The image is that the farmer spreading the seed of the good news of the kingdom. What happens, verse 22, some was sown among thorns. This is someone who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Now, our reaction is probably like, Riley, look around. We are not rich. <laughs> you know, no one came in their, you know, Range Rover Sport today. Uh, no one is blinging it up. We are not rich. And I certainly do not feel rich. But if we were to, you know, take this command that Jesus said, and although it is not a command, no one has to go and sell everything. But we think, oh, we're not rich. But if Jesus said, go and sell all that you possess today, how hard would that be for you to do? I know for some, um, in the last month or two, they've just bought property. Go and sell it. 
But if you scale it right down to the insignificant, the, your iPhone or your, your phone, sell it. Your laptop, sell it. Your TV, sell it. Speaker systems, your Wi-Fi router, oh, we can't sell that. <laughs> your watch, your clothes, your shoes, all of your kids' toys, kitchen appliances, that air fryer, sell it. Thermomix, coffee machine. <laughs> Power tools, mowers, saws, whipper snipper, sipper saws, food, your cars, your furniture, your land, house, shares, superannuation, sell it all. Once you start to list it all out, you start to realize just how rich we are, just how abundant we are in material possessions. And so therefore, this danger is for us too. You are not required to sell all you have, but could you do it? Would you do it for the sake of the kingdom? If Christ called you, if you were face to face like this rich young man was, and he said, sell it all and follow me. That's how you know if, if the love of money has plunged you into a dangerous position. If you're like, no, I, I don't think I could. I don't think I could. I don't think I would. Use this moment as a moment to check yourself um, so that you don't wreck yourself. Okay. Sorry. I, I couldn't resist. That was not in my notes. Now, the reality is it's, it's very possible to be rich and religious, Okay, to be rich and a quote-unquote good person. But it's very difficult, Jesus says, to be rich and to take up your cross and follow him. There are many rich people who do lots of good things. Bene, you know, They have benevolent funds. They give lots of money away. Think of Bill Gates. But they have not and will not take up their cross and follow Christ. And one way I believe that will help us in this temptation, to stay out of this temptation in this snare, is our weekly giving. Our weekly tithing and giving to the Lord weakens these tentacles, weakens this grip that the love of money can have on us. Because when we give, we are building treasure in heaven. We are sending it on ahead and we are saying, we are not for this world. We are saying, Jesus, this is all your money. How much should I keep? And let me command you, if you want to avoid falling into the snare of the love of money, continue and look to see how much more you can give, where else you can give. Currently, Sovereign Grace has these new funds that they've developed, the Latin America Fund, the Africa Fund, the uh, Asia Fund, where we are, people are putting in, some people just recently put in $100,000 to plant churches, to build pastors' colleges in Africa, to spread the gospel throughout Latin America. Think about maybe how you can give into that and experience the freedom as you follow Christ and you are not trapped into the wealth of this world. But look at how the disciples respond to verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? They were dismayed, flabbergasted, shocked, despairing. If a righteous, rich ruler cannot be saved, then what hope do any of us have, they're thinking? For them, wealth was a sign of God's favor, of God's blessing. If you were rich and religious, then, yeah, you were doing the right thing. God had obviously blessed you. But in Jesus' new kingdom, it's a different system. It's a different covenant. 
And it's highlighted by the next sentence, verse 26. But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Who then can be saved, they question. And Jesus fixes his eyes on them and says, It is impossible. The most rich and righteous young man you've ever seen cannot save himself. We cannot be righteous enough, blessed enough, wealthy enough to enter the kingdom of heaven, to receive eternal life. You see, the rich man overestimated his religious performance and underestimated the value of Jesus. And so he missed out today. And if you are here today trying to save yourself through those means, Jesus is saying to you, it's impossible. And if you're a Christian trying to continue to stay in God's favor by performing, or by earning, by being good enough, and you're like, oh, I can't sing today because I was sinful this week. No, no, no. Our salvation never depended on our religious performance to begin with. Self-salvation is impossible, according to Jesus. Self-salvation is impossible. And we have to preach that truth to people. We have to let people know that they can't make it here on their own. Being good enough or blessed enough won't cut it. At the heart of the Christian faith is a white flag. A white flag that every one of us may must lift up in surrender. The surrender of saying, I give up. I retreat. I'm on the wrong team. I can't win. I haven't been good enough. I can't do good enough. I can't earn your favor. King Jesus, will you let me in? Will you pardon me? Will you have mercy on me? Help me. That's at the heart of the Christian faith is understanding that it's impossible to save ourselves. We must raise a white flag. And then comes in the good news, what Jesus says, but with God, All things are possible. There is hope left to us impossible, but God makes it possible. He bridges the gap. He crosses the great divide. Our worldly possessions can be idols which make us cling to the earth and we trade it in. Or our religious performance can be another thing we trust in rather than God alone, but God alone makes salvation impossible. How? Not through self-salvation, but through self-sacrifice. Divine self-sacrifice. What the rich young man was unwilling to do, ultimately, was to part with his riches and love his neighbor, to give it away. And that's precisely the way in which Jesus makes salvation possible for us. He loved his neighbor, you and I emptied his pockets in heaven, came to earth, humbled himself, became a man, lived out the righteous life, actually obeyed all the commands that the rich young man thought he'd obeyed, and then gave away his life on the cross in the greatest act of self-sacrifice and love that has ever been given. And upon that cross, he gives out the possibility of the impossible. He bridges the gap between us and God and spills his precious blood That will cover any and all of our failures religiously, morally, and brings us to him. Upon the cross, the great exchange takes place. A a true rags to riches story. Where we really see ourselves for who we are. We, We have to realize that we're the ones that put him upon the cross. 
And when we trust in him, he transfers and credits to our account all of his righteousness, all of his religious performance, so that the impossible is made possible. And so that if you put your faith and we continue to put our faith in Jesus, we will enter life, guaranteed. We will be in and continue in the kingdom of heaven. We will one day receive the crown of glory, the crown that rightly belongs on Jesus' head. He will transfer it to you and I. It's a wondrous and amazing truth. And that leads us to the final point. So we're leaving sorrowfully. Don't do that. Entering impossibly. The only way to enter is through Jesus Christ. Finally, following hopefully. Let me read verse 27 to 30. Then Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Now, I wonder if I was Jesus, I would have just been like, Peter, you know, slap him on the head. But instead, he's very gracious and in fact goes the opposite way. Often Jesus tells us of what we must give up to follow him, but here he tells us the reward. He reminds us of, actually, you know what, guys? Yeah, when you give up, this is what you will get. It's not all doom and gloom today. It ends on amazing rewards. Look at what he says. Truly, I say to you, in the new world, so upon regeneration, upon Christ's return, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne in heaven, this is all future, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Actually, don't know what that means. That's for another time. Verse 29, but everyone, and this is us, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Jesus is a good king, a gracious king, a joyful king, and a generous king. To all of his soldiers, to all of those who leave everything in this world behind, deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him, he wants to reward them. He wants to bless them. He wants them to know there is better yet to come. You will lose now, but you'll gain forever. William Barclay says this, He who shares Christ's campaign will share Christ's victory. He who shares Christ's warfare will share Christ's triumph. And he who bears the cross will bear the crown. That's amazingly good news. If you lost loved ones in the process of finding Jesus, if you've lost loved things in the process of following Jesus, you will be richly rewarded. A hundredfold, Jesus says. Job, you remember the story of Job? He was, he was blessed twofold. Okay? He had a lot to begin with. He got twice as much. We will be blessed a hundredfold in the kingdom to come. It'll be like when Aslan calls in the last battle in Narnia, further up and further in, he calls out, and brings them through the new world. And every step they take as they run through the new world, it gets better and better. And the call goes out again, further up and further in. And that's what our reality will be in heaven. God will be calling up further up and further in. There is an eternity of joy awaiting us if we would deny ourselves now and take up our cross and follow there will be a great reversal. Those who are first in this life, push themselves to the front, will be last. But those who, like the little children at the start of our story, who are last in this life, they get pushed to the front and they will be first. 
And we ought to rejoice in this. We ought to follow Jesus with the hope of the glory that we will receive in the forefront of our minds so that we can make the day-by-day sacrifices, so we can go through another week, you know, persecuted, unloved, losing out, missing out, knowing that, oh, there is more to come. It's further up and further in for all eternity. And even better than any reward we could have in heaven, whatever that hundredfold land, homes, brothers, sisters, mums, dads, whatever that looks like, even better than all of that will be seeing the king. King Jesus on his glorious throne. The lamb who was slain, the lion of Judah who knows our names. And he will place on every one of our heads a crown, the victor's crown, the crown of all those who ran the whole race to the end, didn't depart, didn't walk away sorrowfully. He will crown you. (laughs) And then we'll take the crown off and throw it back at his feet because he's the only one that should wear a crown. He's the undercover king. It's his kingdom. It's his rule. It's his reign. It's his glory. It's his riches. But he will share it with us. And we ought to live and walk and rejoice in the hope of that. So friends, let not your worldly possessions or your religious performance prevent you from entering eternal life. Choose Christ. If you haven't yet chose him, repent and believe today, now. If you have already chosen Christ, you've already entered life, choose him again every day. Resurrender, lay it down again and ask him to show you how, you want, how he wants you to live for him and live in the hope of the glory that will be revealed, knowing that as you miss out now, you will gain forever. As you become last today, you'll be first in the future kingdom. Let's pray. And then we will sing, even though it's overtime, we must sing, Be Thou My Vision. Lord, we ask that you would fill us with the glory of this passage, that we would look forward to that day when we will see you on your throne and you will hand out the blessings. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you are a kind and generous king. Would you convict our hearts if we are being drawn away by the snare of riches, a desire to be caught up in this world? And would you help us to see the riches that we have awaiting for us, most of all, in knowing you. Help us to enjoy you and sing this song as a prayer to you. Amen.